from the WGN Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday afternoon, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, and welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for May the 17th, 2020. This is our look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So, be safe, be home, take a break, grab a beverage, and we'll get you prepared for the week ahead. Well, I can uh, I can stop the rain, <laughs> you know. I wish I had that power. That was that was a good song. Who'll stop the rain? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Roger, I I admit I stayed up really late Thursday night because I found that thunderstorm so fascinating, and with all of the rain that mm-hmm. came down, yeah. And you know, then you kind of had a, a decent spot on friday and stuff and now we're right back into it again Mm -hmm. it's going to be like this on and off during the week from from what i've seen of the future forecast so but it's springtime yeah isn't springtime doesn't they bring rain showers and helps all the grass and trees grow and the flowers grow well rain showers bring spring flowers Mm -hmm. except when you flood it out (laughs) the the flower bed and the seeds flow down those yes (laughs) yes yes and you know i bought a few herbs to you know and as i'm buying them and looking outside and then i'm thinking you know you can buy the dried ones for (laughs) the same price Uh, no, I, I went ahead, you know, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of a failure when it comes to that stuff. I, oh, really? Yeah. I, you should have called me. Well. I've got a couple of green thumbs. Do you? Oh, yes. Really? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an excellent gardener, if I say so myself. Well, now, I, 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 I have not planted them yet. Okay. They're, well, that's okay. I just got them. Yeah. So, like. You've what, got some time. So, what should I do for the... Well, first of all, you want to transfer them from those. I presume yes. they're in fairly small plastic right, containers. Right, right. You're going to want to transfer them into bigger. Well, I know uh, that. Plants. I know. Right. That, but what should I do with the dirt? In the smaller ones? No, in the big ones. When I re- when I go to plant that into a bigger. Oh, you mean outside? Are you yes. going to plant them outside? Or are you going to keep them in the pots? No, I'm not going to keep them inside. Oh, well, That's not right. fair to them. All right. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're they're not un- under quarantine. <laughs> they're they're yeah, that's right. I don't believe I don't believe herbs and flowers are under stay-at-home orders. Uh, well, if you have dirt in the flower pot, just incorporate it with the plant as you put it in. First of all, you want to loosen the roots a little bit, right? And then you make sure that it's not too deep, but deep enough. Put a little um, uh, plant food in. That's what I was wondering. Uh, on the bottom. About. Yeah, just a little bit, not a lot, because the soil already has enough in there. And then make sure you got some fresh soil in the bag to push down around the, the roots and have the plant just sticking up just a little bit above the ground. Um, and uh, Let nature let, do the rest. You got it. I mean, they're sitting outside now in those little cups because and that's fine. the rain is good for yeah, it. Yeah, but you, you know? don't want them flooded. Well, I don't think it's where they're at. They're not going to get okay. Flooded. Then you then you should be okay. I mean, who knows how long they didn't get water in the in the store I bought them at? 
Well, that's true. You never know who's taking care of those things. Right. Yeah. So it's up to me now mm-hmm. to do herb maintenance. <laughs> herb, or is that herb maintenance? Herb. <laughs> you, you remember herb maintenance? I remember herb you? maintenance. Yeah. yeah, yeah nice to, guy. <laughs> yeah, he used to work here at the station. He used to uh, clean up after us. He was the overnight janitor. Yeah, right. Uh, um, <laughs> but so, do, I mean, do you plant like garden herbs? and spices have i do you do well i don't anymore because they took my garden away from me they put up a uh, sidewalk ah but i i did i had been growing unfortunately where my garden was it didn't get a lot of sun it only got about four or five hours of sun in the midday because it was in between buildings so my vegetables really didn't grow that well i got some tomatoes i got some cucumbers i got some peppers but every day I'd go out, and most of the ones that had started to grow had uh, uh, teeth marks on them. Ooh, ooh, so the uh, the night creatures had come by and feasted yeah. a little bit uh, on them. So, uh, but I got a few, uh, f- a couple of cucumbers, a couple of peppers uh, out of it while I had it, and then I finally decided, you know, it's just it's not producing what right. I was hoping it would. Right. And so I replaced it with a fountain. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Yes. So it was all good. Took away paradise and put in the parking lot. You got that right. Yeah, I, I, I've always and I love garden fresh tomatoes. Mm. Never have had any luck at all at, at growing your own ever. Yeah, any time, any place, never. I even bought that thing that you you, you were supposed to grow them upside down. Oh yeah, how did that, that work out? Yeah, that didn't work. <laughs> I mean. Uh, it looked. I, it sure looked good on the commercial, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, that didn't work. Uh, I'm so sorry. Oh, uh, but uh, yeah. what? What can I say? Um, you, you either got it or you don't. Well, I bought another tomato plant anyway. <laughs> <did>. Of course. <laughs> Is this one upside down or right side up? I, well, I don't know. By the time I get home. I may kick it over. I don't know. It, uh, no, it's right side up now. Okay, good. Uh, and I, I bought uh, some jalapenos. Ooh, look at you. Yeah. But then I just did some herbs because the herbs, basil, mm-hmm. basil grows like crazy. Yes, it does. Yeah. Which, and I love basil mm-hmm. and everything. So, oh, yeah. You'll well, be fine. Once things start warming up a little bit and we get more sun during the day than rain during the day, uh, you're going to be fine. You're going to be you know, doing uh, cuttings. Uh, before you know it, you're going to have great herbs uh, to serve with your meals. And it, if Herb comes along, you could have dinner with him, too. Oh, boy. Yeah, Herb Garden. <laughs> Herb yes. Garden. Open invite to Herb Garden. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, Roger's here with all of the news. <laughs> and, and gardening op- tips. And gardening and optimism. <laughs> Producer Casera is here to field your phone calls. We're at 382. 38- 312-981-7200 you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash the sunday spin we're on twitter at symbol sunday spin and remember you can find all of our shows on wgnradio.com you can get our podcast also at itunes by searching for my name rick pearson we're going to take a quick break on this rainy sunday afternoon you're listening to the sunday spin on wgn Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline Studio. Out of the wet and damp moisture of today, uh, I'm glad you're tuning in to listen. Uh, it's going to be a very 
wide-ranging, informative show today. Uh, after Roger brings us a check of the headlines at 5.30, we'll speak to Sam Toya. He's the president and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association, and we all know the toll that the stay-at-home orders have taken on the restaurant business, uh, but we'll speak to him about whether there's any help from Washington and what will restaurants look like in a reopened economy. After the 6 o'clock news, we'll speak to Democratic State Representative Mike Zaleski of Riverside. He's the chair of the Illinois House Revenue and Finance Committee. And we'll speak to him about the legislature reconvening in Springfield on Wednesday and the effect of the coronavirus on revenues and what that means in putting together a new state budget. After 6.30, a good friend of the program, Rebecca Shee, joins the show. Rebecca is the executive director of the American Business Immigration Coalition. We'll talk to her about small businesses, their access to money. We all know about the payroll protection program. Have businesses, small businesses, been able to access that? Small businesses, small businesses with immigrants working, a community that's also being very hard hit by the coronavirus. We'll talk to her about that. We'll also talk to her about uh, the very important need for people to fill out the federal census. After the news at 7, we'll speak to Illinois State Treasurer Michael Frerichs. We'll talk to him about the state efforts to help residents and businesses during the economic crisis from the coronavirus. And he's also from Champaign. We'll get his view on how people over in uh, central Illinois are dealing with the issues there. And then after a final check of the news headlines from Roger around 7.30, we'll talk to Doug Finke. A great colleague of mine, Doug, is the State House correspondent for the State Journal Register of Springfield. And we'll get his take on lawmakers coming back in session and the politics that will be at play when the legislature reconvenes. That's all up ahead, but right now, time for uh, to launch our weekly spin through the national politics. And we begin with the House passage Friday of the Democratic-written $3 trillion Heroes Coronavirus Relief Bill. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi pushed for its passage, even though the Republican Senate has no plans to consider it. Here's Speaker Pelosi defending the bill. Not acting is the most expensive course. We are presenting a plan to do what is necessary to deal with the corona crisis and make sure we can get the country back to work and school safely. We have a goal. We have benchmarks, and we have the science to succeed. In this critical moment for our country, we must demonstrate a clear strategy of testing, tracing, and treatment again. We must honor our heroes in the coronavirus crisis with support, not just words. We must address the pain of families who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own. I'm proud of the chairs of our committees of jurisdiction for the work on all five bills. We must all take an extra moment to understand the numbers we are seeing, which are the most overwhelming in our lifetimes. These numbers require action that we've never had to take before. There are those who said, let's just pause. But the families who are suffering, though, That hunger doesn't take a pause, the rent doesn't take a pause, the bills don't take a pause, the hardship of losing a job or tragically losing a loved one doesn't take a pause. That's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi speaking about the $3 trillion HEROES coronavirus relief package, the latest package that passed the House. But uh, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell says that bill is a no-go. He calls it a liberal wish list. He still believes a pause is needed before any new relief bill is passed. And he continues laying down this marker 
that there has to be liability reform as part of the legislation. Here's Mitch McConnell speaking to Fox News' Brett Baer. Well, it's an 1,800-page liberal wish list. It it strikes me it's hardly salvageable. Just to give you an example of some of the absurdity, there's money in there for illegal immigrants. It mentions the word cannabis, of all things, 68 times more than the word jobs or hire are mentioned in the entire bill. Uh, It's a a parade of absurdities that can hardly be taken seriously. Let me tell you what I will predict, Brett. Brett, I think the president and Senate Republican majorities will be on the same page uh, when we get to the point where we need to do another bill. And our red line is going to be liability protections for those who are brave enough to begin to open up the economy again in the wake of the trial lawyers who are descending already on hospitals and doctors and businesses. Uh, As of about a week and a half ago, 771 lawsuits have already been filed. So we're working on a narrowly crafted protection from liability for things directly related uh, to the coronavirus, and that will have to be a part of any package, because if we're really going to get the economy up and going again, people have to be brave enough to begin to engage in, in economic activity. How about the presidents of universities? Are they willing to open up for the fall? Or are we going to have another period of time where not only K-12 through students, but potentially college students are still at home? All of those questions need to be answered by the fall. Liability protection will help provide the answer. That's Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. His response to the Democratic House-passed HEROES Act coronavirus relief bill. There was an interesting back and forth uh, on Capitol Hill last week, uh, a lot of it done by Zoom, when Kentucky Senator Rand Paul spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci during a Senate hearing. Paul, a Republican, is an ophthalmologist, and he says those who have had coronavirus should be presumed to have immunity. That's even though five sailors aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt in Guam have tested positive again for the virus. Rand Paul tried to explain the immunity issue to Fauci, but Fauci explained the facts. Can you help set the record straight that the scientific record, as it is being accumulated, is supportive that infection with coronavirus likely leads to some form of immunity, Dr. Fauci? Yep. Thank you for the question, Senator Paul. Yes, you're correct that I have said that given what we know about the recovery from viruses such as coronaviruses in general, or even any infectious disease with very few exceptions, that when you have antibody present, it very likely indicates a degree of protection. I think it's in the semantics of how this is expressed. When you say, has it been formally proven by long-term natural history studies, which is the only way that you can prove, one, is it protective, which I said and would repeat, is likely that it is, but also, what is the degree or titer of antibody that gives you that critical level of protection, and what is the durability? As I've often said, and I again repeat, you can make a reasonable assumption that it would be protective, but natural history studies over a period of months to years will then tell you definitively if that's the case. Now, Rand Paul also sought to lecture Fauci, saying that Fauci wasn't the end-all 
in dealing with the coronavirus, particularly when it came to allowing students to return to school in the fall. Something of particular concern to Fauci. Fauci said he wasn't the end-all, but he cautioned about students returning to school, particularly with a new syndrome related to the coronavirus that has begun showing up in children. Once again, here's Rand Paul with the question. I think we ought to have a, a little bit of humility in, in our uh, belief that we know what's best for the economy. And as much as I respect you, Dr. Fauci, I don't think you're the end all. I don't think you're the one person that gets to make a decision. We can listen to your advice, but there are people on the other side saying there's not going to be a surge and that we can safely open the economy. And the facts will t- bear this out. But if we keep kids out of school for another year, what's going to happen is the poor and underprivileged kids who don't have a parent that's able to teach them at home are not going to learn for a full year. And I think we ought to look at the Swedish model and we ought to look at letting our kids get back to school. I think it's a huge mistake if we don't open the schools in the fall. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, can I respond to that even though there are only 32 seconds left? Uh, Yes, and you might make it clear whether or not you suggested that uh, we shouldn't go back to school in the fall. Well, uh, first of all, uh, Senator Paul, uh, thank you for your comments. I I have never made myself out to be the end-all and only voice of this. I'm a scientist, a physician, and a public health official. I give advice according to the best scientific evidence. There are a number of other people who come into that and give advice that are more related to the things that you spoke about, about the need to get the country back open again and economically. I don't give advice about economic things. I don't give advice about anything other than public health. So I wanted to respond to that. The second thing is that you use the word we should be humble about what we don't know. And I think that falls under the fact that we don't know everything about this virus. And we really better be very careful, particularly when it comes to children. Because the more and more we learn, we're seeing things about what this virus can do that we didn't see from the studies in China or in Europe. For example, right now, children presenting with COVID-19 who actually have a very strange inflammatory syndrome very similar to Kawasaki's syndrome. I think we better be careful if we are not cavalier in thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, we had uh, Fauci's warning about schools reopening, which was something that really bothered President Donald Trump. Trump is pushing for the economy and society to open up. Here's the president speaking about Fauci. Look, he wants to play all sides of the equation. Uh, I think we're going to have a tremendous fourth quarter. I think we're going to have a transitional third quarter. And I think we're going to have a phenomenal next year. I feel that we are going to have a country that's ready to absolutely have one of its best years. Next year, with all of the stimulus and all of the fact that it's a a pent-up demand like I haven't seen. I was surprised by his answer, actually, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, it's just... To me, it's not an acceptable answer, especially when it comes to schools. The only thing that would be acceptable, as I said, is professors, teachers, etc., over a certain age. I think they ought to take it easy for another few weeks, five weeks, four weeks, who knows, whatever it may be. But I think they have to be careful because this is a disease that attacks age and it attacks health. And if you have a heart problem, if you have diabetes, if you're a certain age, uh, it's certainly... uh, much more dangerous. But with the young children, I mean, uh, and students, it's really, it's uh, just take a look at the statistics. It's pretty amazing. 
That was President Donald Trump. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. This is The Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Good Sunday evening. Welcome to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me on the phone is a good friend of the program, Sam Toya. Sam is the president and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association. And Sam, I have to compliment you. You might be one of the most viewed and listened to uh, people uh, around over the last couple of weeks in response to uh, the Reopen Illinois plans announced by the governor and Mayor Lightfoot. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I, I always enjoy being on your show. Uh, I wish it was in better times, but uh, here we are. You know, we never saw this pandemic coming, but we're here. Well, and and you know, you know how much I love food and the restaurant industry and the great thing, uh, Chicago's magnificent restaurants, and just uh, you know what, I'm just so afraid of what it's going to look like on the other side. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've been hearing a lot. So just to give, let me give you a little, little feedback here. So sure. in the month, so, so far, 8 million employees in the restaurant industry have been laid off uh, throughout the country. Two out of three people in our industry have lost their jobs. We have lost $80 billion in April alone in sales, and we're probably going to lose probably close to $100 billion in sales uh, for the month of May. And then 50% of the restaurants right now are not even open. The other 50% that are open, Rick, are doing curbside pickup, delivery, carryout, drive-through. But they're down anywhere from 70 to 80% in sales. Yeah, that's what I was hearing was like that 80% figure as, as, you know, as restaurateurs have scrambled to try to adjust to delivery and curbside. And, you know, for, for many of them, things that, that weren't even you know, weren't even offered before when they were they were open full time. I, I I know that the industry has been looking for some relief from Washington uh, as a distressed industry. Uh, where does where does that stand? That, that's a good question. So obviously, in the CARES Act phase four, that's coming up. We saw the two point two trillion dollar uh, bill passed you know over a month ago now, but they're going to look at doing phase four. In phase four, what we're asking for is a restaurant uh, relief uh, like they did for the airlines. We think a, a bucket of money, like $240 billion, should be put on the side just for the restaurant industry like they did for the airlines, like they have done in the past for the banks, like they've done in the past for the auto industry. Because restaurants are the soul of every neighborhood here in the city of Chicago, but it's also the soul of every neighborhood, every big city small city, middle-sized city, small town. It is just the soul of every community. And that's that's the ask. What is the response back for that ask? Well, you know, because they're working on the uh, phase four right now, uh, you know, we've had a lot of conversations with uh, Senator Durbin, Congressman Quigley, Congressman Chuy Garcia. So there's a lot of conversations going on. We're having conversations through the National Restaurant Association with uh, Senator Marco Rubio because it's under his it's under his uh, committee. We talked with uh, people on Senator Maddie Velasquez out of New York, out of her committee in the House. So there is definitely you know, and obviously they just passed it, you know that uh, you know three trillion dollar uh, four trillion dollar bill out of the. Um, 
out of the House. I don't know where that's going to go in the Senate. But what we're specifically asking for is when they're working on the CARES Act on this phase four, there should be $240 billion just for restaurant relief like they've done for the airlines, the auto industry, and the banks in the past. Well, and this is uh, an attempt at, at small business relief. That, that is true. But we're saying there should be money just for Restaurants, yes, it should be for all retail and restaurants, absolutely. But specifically, at an X amount of dollars, Rick, should be put on the side just for restaurants. Right, but 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 I mean, you know, lost in this is that you know, restaurants, the vast majority of them are small businesses, and that's absolutely right. I mean, here in the state of Illinois, let's let let me remind your listeners, we are the largest private sector employer in the state of Illinois, the restaurant food service industry. At the beginning of the year, there was five hundred and ninety-four thousand people working in the industry. As of a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, three hundred twenty-one thousand of them were are on unemployment or furloughed, and I'm sure the number's up closer to 400,000 uh, when we get the new figures out this week on unemployment. So it's just devastating, but the restaurant industry, again, is the largest sector, largest, uh, you know, sector employer here in the state of Illinois, and the second largest uh, private sector employer throughout the country. Were a lot of your members able to access that payroll protection program? Well, you know, so there was, you know, there was a 3.0, then there was 3.5. Right. So currently the PP program, uh, you know, uh, simply doesn't work for restaurants because it was set up where you did two and a half times your payroll and you, you know, and that's the money you got. And eight weeks, you were supposed to, you know, for eight weeks and you're supposed to, 75% goes for labor, 25% goes for rent and or utilities. But you're supposed to spend all that money by June 30th. When we put the original PPP program together, if you remember correctly, the president was saying we would have the economy open by Easter. We thought here in Illinois, okay, it should be open by the beginning of May. If that was the case, the PPP program would have worked. But now there's a possibility we won't even be in opening restaurants to sometime in June, maybe end of June. And you've got to have all the money spent by June 30th. So what do you, you, know, what do, you do? You bring everyone back. 75%'s got to go for labor, 25% goes for rent or utilities. What do you do then? Let them go and they go on unemployment again? So we're asking for some fix in the PPP program, like possibly having it extended to the end of the year that you can spend the uh, funds. And also expanding instead of 75% labor, 25% for rent and utilities, maybe do 50% for labor. 50% for rent and utilities. As you know, here in the city of Chicago, rent's a very big part of the economics of restaurants or economic, uh, you know, goes towards paying the rent when they, you know, when they take in their uh, funds. So that's why we're saying 50-50. 50% labor costs, 50% for rent and or mortgages and utilities. We're speaking with Sam Toya. He is the president and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association about the uh, damaging effects that the coronavirus and the economy and executive orders have taken on the restaurant industry. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. 312-981-7200 is our phone number. Uh, joining me in this segment is Sam Toya, President and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association. Uh, Sam, we've got a question from our good friend Ron. Ron, as always, welcome to the Sunday Spin. Yeah, thank you, Rick. 
I mean, yeah, we have a quick question. Now, one of the things that the Republicans have said before they, you know, even pass the bill, they want to look at how the first, how effective the first bill was with the stimulus. And, and my question is because the restaurants have been closed, then we, we, I don't know how we can really make an assessment how effective the stimulus. Has, has has been because it's been closed and, and and then my second question is well can you answer to me have the um that that first stimulus provided some kind of relief you know to 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 small restaurants so those those kind of my two questions thank you very much thank you Ron okay so Ron uh, let me just explain the PPP loan was you know was a loan that turns into a grant. And you, you, the, the way they figured it out was two and a half times what your uh, payroll was for two and a half months. And you had eight weeks to use that money for 75% for labor costs and then 25% for rent and or utilities. So when we did this, when it was passed, again, as I said a little bit earlier, we thought that possibly the economy would be open by Easter and or by May 1st. So that's why it's not working. What I'm saying on the restaurant recovery fund is money would go to the restaurants to help them reopen because 75% of the first PPP program was to go for labor costs, which any good restaurant tour, they care about their team members. And they, all they cared about was making sure their team members were getting paid because you go into restaurants for the food, but you come back for the service. So you've got to keep your good team members. That's what it's all about. Team members are like family to restaurant tours. But you still have all the other bills to pay. And that's why I'm saying let's put $240 billion into a restaurant recovery fund that the restaurant industry throughout the country can pull off of to pay all their other bills. I, you, and you, Again, you touched on this point right before we went to break, was looking for flexibility in, in that PPP because, as, as you point out, uh, 25% of it is was supposed to be dedicated for rent, and I think they're, you're looking for some flexibility there because, obviously, with the, the price of rent, even in these times. That's exactly right, Rick. That's why we're trying to get some rule changes, and we're working with Treasury and the SBA, and a lot of restaurants have even started pulling down on their loan that turns into a grant until they get the rule changes because the original rules is you had to spend it within eight weeks and you had to spend it by june 30th once again restaurants might not even be open by june 30th so why are you going to pull this money down bring people back and then put them back on unemployment and you had no business so that's why i keep saying and we're working with congressman quigley and congressman garcia and senator durbin on a restaurant recovery phone fund specifically for restaurants throughout the country that's on top of the ppp rule changes that you're exactly for. right exactly right rick so i mean there's there's a lot of moving parts here is i guess what what what's going on um you, Definitely. you uh had written a letter earlier this month to the governor uh about the the provisions and restore illinois plan about restaurants that would apparently stop any dine-in service at, at until the end of June. Um, has there been any further communication with the governor's office on this? And I'm, I'm kind of curious, and also I want you to kind of update us, too, on where things stand as far as uh, Mayor Lightfoot's reopening plan 
in the city of Chicago and restaurants as well. All right. So obviously in the governor's um, Restore Illinois plan, you know, he was about, you know, a couple, about a, maybe about 10 days ago, he rolled this out. And in it, restaurants would not basically be able to open to June 26th. And he broke it down into four different sections throughout the, throughout the state, right? Southern Illinois, Central Illinois, North Central Illinois, and Northeastern Illinois. And then he had a 28-day period to move between phases. All right, so if we and then obviously June 26, we would open with limited seating. A lot of limited seating, you know, usually is around 25%. Then if we're looking at that, we would wait another 28 days, which would then be around July 24th, maybe to go to 50%. Again, restaurant economic models were never, basically no business, to go 14 to 16 weeks with no sales or only 20 to 30% of the sales you were doing the previous year. Again, we have, uh, I've had conversations with the governor's people as yesterday, last night, and again today, and I know there's going to be some more conversations uh, tomorrow as well. Now, all restaurateurs about the health and safety of their team members and their customer, number one, number one, safety and health, team members and customers. So we always want to hear what the scientists and doctors have to say. So we know that the, you know, COVID-19, you know, we're flattening the curve and hopefully it keeps flattening. And I think that the governor is, you know, all about communication. So we're communicating to see if, you know, the COVID-19 cases do go down. We see our neighboring states open, Indiana, uh, Missouri, Iowa, Wisconsin just open. You know, we still have another two weeks left here in May. Let's see if those state, uh, states that reopen, if the COVID-19 spikes back up. If it doesn't, let's see, possibly we could think about opening up a little bit earlier here in the state of Illinois. Again, we want to watch these numbers, hear what the scientists and doctors have to say, but also keep in mind that the restaurant industry out here is hemorrhaging right now. Sam, how do you see the restaurants open, reopening here in Illinois? I mean, are people going to be wearing, are servers going to be wearing personal protective equipment? Uh, sure. I, I mean, obviously, we, we, you know, again, we're very progressive when it comes here to the state of Illinois. We always have, like everyone that works in the restaurant industry has to go online and take a food handler course. Uh, there's a manager that's certified in food handling at all times in restaurants. So we've always been progressive. And if you, re- and I'm sure you notice, Rick, you eat out a lot. We are a heavily regulated and frequently inspected by public health officials on a regular basis. Again, we have great uh, Department of Public Health here in the city of Chicago. We have a great Department of Illinois Department of Public Health as well. So we're highly regulated. With that said, we know we're going into America 2.0. So, we're, again, we understand that face covering, social distancing, which is number one. That's what the scientists and doctors will tell you. Hand sanitizer. So we think we're working on right now. We, we, we met with some of the mayor's people. And, again, I told you we've had conversations with governor's people uh, yesterday, today, and we'll get on Monday. And we want to show that we're going to put out a safety protocol out there so all businesses are safe. That's what we want to make sure, because the safety and health of our customers and team members is always number one, just like the governor and the mayor always say as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you are a heavily regulated industry when it comes to health standards, but now it's going to be kind of even more hyper-regulated, I would think, just because of the sensitivities involved. Yes. 
that is true, and we understand that. Restaurateurs understand that. We're entering America 2.0, and again, Illinois always leads the country when it comes to um, training of, you know, restaurant people that work in restaurants with food handler and stuff. So the National Restaurant Association, CircSafe, is working on new programming and new education uh, programs to educate our workers here. As I mentioned at the beginning of the year, we were the largest private sector employer, and we intend to be the world, uh, you know, the state's uh, number one employer again. Uh, So we want to do training because we know we're regulated. We know we're going into America 2.0, and restaurateurs care about the safety and health of their customers and team members. I'm going to miss menus. I'm going, you know, I, I mean, I think those are perhaps a thing of the past as we, you know, look for less contact, you know, and, and things that are disposable, those kinds of things. Or maybe, right. maybe, maybe we have disposable menus and then I won't feel so guilty about when I steal one. There you go. So, yes, a lot of people talking about disposable menus. You know, maybe you can order off your iPhone. You know, you look at the menu on your iPhone because, uh, you know, you can go to the uh, when you go into your, one of your favorite restaurants here in one of our great neighborhood restaurants in the 77 neighborhoods throughout the city you can look at, you know, go to the website, order off your, you know, off your you know, smartphone in the restaurant, disposable you know, disposable menus. We're all ears. We're trying to figure this out. We're looking at what they're doing and, you know, what they're suggesting in California and New York and Massachusetts, you know, throughout, you know, throughout the uh, country with it. You know, we're, look, we're taking the best of everything. We're putting a very good safety protocol together because that's what the governor and mayor want to see. And again, we're communicating this and we will lead uh, you know, when it comes to health inspection here in the state of Illinois, when we open up America 2.0. Do you think it's likely that kind of this first reopening stage for restaurants will be the ability to use outdoors as a, a as a place to increase that social distancing? Yeah, we, ha- we have had conversations with the mayor and her team. We're looking at doing outdoor because, you know, outdoor dining, they say, obviously, you can get COVID-19 anywhere, but it's it's the odds are a little bit less when you're outside. So social distancing is the number one thing that scientists and doctors say. So we're looking at maybe closing streets, closing bus lanes, bike lanes, but we have to go a little bit deeper. We're talking here in the city of Chicago, with Chicago department of transportation. Cause obviously we have the meter deal. The meters still need to, you know, be paid. We have bus lanes, we have uh, bike lanes, but there's a lot of communication going on. The mayor wants to think out of the box, and we want to help our restaurateurs get open, outdoor cafes, sidewalk cafes, but due to social distancing, six feet apart, and then use some of the streets, bike lanes, and bus lanes. What can people do now to help their local restaurant? Good question. So you can obviously call your local restaurant and go to their plate, you know, go to their website. Don't use the third-party delivery. Go right to their website. So you can order, you can do curbside pickup, you can do delivery, carry out, you can buy gift cards and then use the gift cards when, um, when your favorite restaurant reopens for dining room service because it's all about cash flow. Restaurateurs want to take in cash flow so they can make the payroll for their team members because it's in the restaurant business, it's all about your team members, how good your operation runs, and you want to keep those team members. And that's what restaurateurs are trying to figure out right now. Let's get cash flow in here so I can pay our team members. That's Sam Toya. He is the president and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association.
Now, the Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Welcome to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Joining me now on the phone is Democratic State Representative Michael Zaleski from Riverside. And uh, Representative Zaleski is the chairman of the Illinois House Revenue and Finance Committee. Representative, thank you for joining me this evening. Uh, it's good to be on, Rick. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. But I have great trepidation when it comes to the legislature returning in session because it's going to be a lot of work, I have a feeling. Um, this is the first time with the legislature coming in on Wednesday. This is the first time they've been back since how long? Uh, I want to say we were there the first week of March. And then we um, were supposed to have a week off back in the districts, and then we never came back. So, uh, yeah, it's been early March at least since we've been uh, in the Capitol. Now, I know this is technically a special session where it's limited to the certain items that were delineated uh, in the special session call, all all related to uh, coronavirus. But obviously the, the biggest issue is the state budget and we've all seen what the the numbers have been the numbers uh from the governor's office the the revenue shortfall not only for this budget year that ends on june 30th but also what are we looking at ahead for uh, the the new budget year that starts july 1 i mean how do you how do you put together a budget when we we've been at it for about uh, six weeks. Uh, we've had a working group in the House Democratic Caucus led by Leader Harris, and he's been in communication with the governor's uh, staff and the other caucuses. And um, it won't be easy. Um, you know, the numbers, the effect on the revenue is ca- nothing short of catastrophic. Um, I think our plan is to. Uh, put forth a, a spending plan that does delineate, you know, line items and and talk, you know, and try to um, account for what we consider to be core principles in in any uh, working budget year. With the understanding that the governor is probably going to need increased uh, flexibility to move money into different silos if it comes to that. Uh, we're going to also want to see what the federal government ends up doing uh, with respect to both uh, revisions to the original. CARES Act and anything that might be coming in the future. So uh, it's going to be a little bit of planning ahead and a little bit of acknowledging the dire straits that we face currently. Well, I guess I'm wondering, too, is and, and obviously uh, you have we even had the governor uh, recently call for a kind of a state based uh, relief act for uh, residents and small businesses. But so much is dependent upon the federal money and that's that's just a big question mark at this point isn't it it is um you know there there's i i read sort of the published reports or late last week and there seems to be you know what the house the federal house democrats put out which was this three trillion dollar package that is ambitious and you know critiques of it being too ambitious are you know in my mind um a little, a little disingenuous, but it it was it's it's perceived as not being a, a reasonable in the Senate. Um, so you have you know 
too much spending in the House, and then you have the Senate saying pump the brakes. I think the middle there is probably a limited amount of more relief for states and maybe some flexibility in what's already been allocated so that we can use it to fix existing revenue shortfalls. You have uh, the president even today, I guess this morning, on uh, Fox News Business, uh, citing Democratic states and specifically Illinois and using the term bailout and how, you know, uh, obviously when you have a Democratic governor like Pritzker and a Republican president like Trump at loggerheads uh, in, in Trump's term that uh, Pritzker is trying to get uh, Washington to make up for 25 years of bad spending decisions. I, I mean, you know, I think the critique is that we are looking for more than what other states would be looking for, which I don't find to be accurate. You know, I, I think every state, red or blue, governed by Republicans or Democrats, is seeing their revenue uh, fall off a cliff. And I think that they're going to rightfully ask their congressmen and their senators to go to D.C. and say, is there anything you can do to mitigate the pain of, you know, five months, which I think is going to end up being four or five months of, of a lack of economic activity? And, and I don't think it's unreasonable to ask Congress to consider that. I think it's, it's something that we should, at the very least, ask our congressmen to do. And, you know, we're not asking... For anything any other state doesn't want, I think we're asking for just allocation of of loss of revenue, and you know, then we'll go about budget making in the best way we can. So, I don't consider it a bailout. I consider it a necessary, critical need of every state that's dealing with, you know, again, a catastrophic circumstance. I guess the question, and and I'm going to save this because we're going to take a break here momentarily. But when we come back, uh, the question is uh, how. How do, how do you believe Washington will get money to Illinois and municipalities, and how many strings will be attached? That'll be the okay. question. That'll be the question for Democratic State Representative Mike Zaleski from Riverside, Chairman of the Illinois House Revenue Committee. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Rick Pearson here with your Sunday spin from the WGN Skyline studio. On the phone is the chairman of the Illinois House Revenue and Finance Committee, Democratic State Representative Michael Zaleski from Riverside. And uh, I, I posed the question to you before the break, and, 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 and I'll restate it is, uh, I'm, I'm anticipating too, because it is not just a red state or a blue state problem, it's a blue state, red state problem. Every state is in need of uh, some help with revenues over the loss from the uh, pandemic and and the stay-at-home orders and non-essential business orders and those kinds of things. The question, I guess, is how how many strings do you think are attached to any money coming from the feds? Um, I, I'd be su- I'd be surprised if they simply gave us a blank check and said you you uh, you can do anything you'd like with with this uh, CARES Act relief. Um, you know, so I, I expect there'll be some limitations. There was in the first couple of CARES Act uh, bills to the states. Um, you know, I hope it's I hope it's reasonable. I hope it's just go to pay operating expenses and and help us uh, make basic um, uh, make basic um, 
appropriations to agencies and and you know communities to to help them get through this um that's my expectation and you know beyond that i probably i probably won't have a better flavor of it until congress you know sits down and negotiates with each other on what what they're actually going to do but you know some of the talk that i uh, follow in dc says that the the feds wouldn't even be acting until sometime in june uh granted you know if there was some action that would still be before the state launches its new budget year july 1st but given that uncertainty uh is it a matter of trying to put together a partial year budget rather than a a, a full year budget yeah well i think it's i think it's a matter of sort of laying out a spending plan that has a uh operational structure to it that allows us to fund state government and certain programs. And I think then combine the governor's increased flexible authority with, you know, whatever happens at the federal end, um, you, you'll give us the opportunity to sit back in those summer months, evaluate what our, uh, what we're able to do in terms of both uh, the federal, uh, you know, whatever federal money is coming our way, whatever federal borrowing we can do, um, it, what, whether revenues increase or not, and then I think at some point in the in the future we'll come back to Springfield and reevaluate where we are from a budget perspective. I think that's probably the most realistic scenario. So, so are we looking in this three day scheduled session to be done with everything until uh, until to to convene at a later date somewhere down the road? I, I mean, I think the special session proclamation lays out our agenda pretty well. I think right. there's limited things we can do with COVID relief. I think there's a budget we have to pass. I think we have to deal with some um, election-related activity. And then there's certain laws, we call them sunsets, that end at the end of uh, either the end of a fiscal year or the end of a calendar year that you know agencies will tell us, you really got to get this done so that we don't have uncertainty in the law. So I think those areas are the ones we focus on in three days. You know, it's going to be interesting, Rick. We, we're going to go at the convention center, and we're going to have roll call voting. It's not going to be a typical switch uh, buttons, button voting. So there's not going to be a lot of bandwidth for extracurricular activity. I think we're, our agenda is going to be really narrow and really focused in a desire to get us out of there, both for our own personal safety, staff safety, and just because logistically there's not going to be an opportunity to do a whole lot more. So, but but the goal is to try to basically wrap up in three days to uh, to reassemble at a, at a at a point in the future. Yeah, that's correct. Um, you you mentioned about election issues, and I, I want to kind of move over to that. Of course, uh, a lot of talk on the federal level, uh, but also among the states about uh, using this as an effort to move to vote by mail something that uh, the president is vehemently against and, and cites potential for fraud, even though there has been very limited cases of fraud in vote-by-mail that's been shown. But Not to mention he votes by mail, but go ahead. Well, yes, and I was going to say, and he, he cast his vote uh, in Florida, from, from D.C. for Florida. Uh, but... Uh, there are, you know, there's all kinds of flavors in this. There's, there's ones who say everybody in the state of Illinois who's a registered voter should get a ballot 
and stamped so that they can just fill it and send it back in. There's others that say, well, everybody should get a application to vote by mail, uh, which might have more advocates from maybe the county clerks and and the 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 local folks because they actually run the elections. I mean, how how expansive do you think we're going to get? You know, with this election type issue. Well, I think whatever we do, uh, my expectation is it'll be limited to this election because I, you sort of articulated the the special circumstances of a COVID election. Um, and I think you laid out really nicely, like, what are the options we have? My, my own personal opinion is um, we should make uh, voting by mail as easy as we can for this one election just to reduce the um, opportunity for the virus to spread in polling places. Um, if that means that everyone gets the opportunity to vote um by mail, then um, they should be given that opportunity. And if if there's a limited amount of time where, you know, you haven't voted by mail, you haven't postmarked the application, maybe we stand up four or five polling places in each um, unit of local government so that you can get there by the election day to vote. I think it's almost going to be the reverse of the way we usually... I haven't talked to anybody. This is my own personal opinion, but it should be almost the reverse way of what we do usually, which is voting by mail is sort of a uh, outlier and then everyone goes on election day. Maybe this time we do it the other way. Um, but I do think vote by mail is a preferred method for this one election. And then we see, again, we see how it works. We evaluate it and then we go from there and in future elections to see what can be, what can be done and what's best practices. We've seen from, uh, the Republican leaders in the legislature, uh, calls to use the special session to uh, talk about legislation that uh, is basically a legislative review of the issue of Governor Pritzker's executive orders with the opportunity to amend those orders. Uh, do you see any anything moving on that front? I think... Uh It'll be difficult to get into the legisl- the executive orders and 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 reversing anything that's been um, penned to paper on on executive orders only because what's important to a downstate lawmaker may not be important to a suburban lawmaker. I think the thing that we can hope for, you know, what I've heard, I I know there's frustration with um, the Restore Illinois plan, and I think the governor has acknowledged that, you know, he he can't make everyone happy with this plan and and he's doing what he can to listen to science and epidemiologists who tell him that it's important to do it this way. Um, I think the best thing we can do as opposed to going down there and um, trying to legislate him out of um, what he's trying to accomplish is to just continue to have a dialogue with the governor and, and continue to try to work with his staff on explaining um you know, the challenges legislators see. And, and eventually I think the numbers are going to improve enough where you're really going to start to see a dynamic shift and, and the state's going to, going to start reopening in a way that people really wanted to. But I don't expect us to revisit the executive orders when we get back down there. Well, I mean, and, and uh, if you were listening to the previous guest, Sam Toya, with the Restaurant Association, he's kind of in this, you know, well, it takes 20, 28 days to get to another stage, and then it takes 28 days after that to get to another stage. And, you know, trying to look and see, you know, why isn't there some flexibility here? 
That, that's true, and and I think that you know they, there's there's probably a first of a frustration among Sam's members about the the way the restore plan is set up, and I think there's a probably. Um, Again, I, I think that, you know, when I've heard the governor talk, he's he's been willing to engage in a dialogue with um, restaurant owners. And I think the mayor said on Friday in, in the Tribune, in your publication, that she's looking at ways to try to get restaurants open in Chicago in June. So it, it, in my opinion, if the numbers continue to improve and you start to see a real, um, real sense that we're really starting to reduce the amount of effect this virus is having. I think all these decisions get a lot easier, um, but we're not quite there yet. I think May 28th is a big day. I think if we get to phase three, I think um, we'll be in a position to continue to to have a constructive um, conversations with the governor on how to ease back into an economy that can start generating economic activity again. You kind of touched on something about, you know, to me, the, this, this coronavirus and the, the, the way the state has dealt with it has has only seemed to have you know we those divisions between upstate and downstate have mm-hmm. always been raw but just seem to have really really expanded on that and i don't know that 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 differential gets healed in what becomes of the new economy after this i i tend to agree with you i'm a i'm a little uh saddened that you know it's it, it this this whole virus has seemed to coarsen our political divide overall um you know and and you know i think one thing that i've noticed in just um reviewing what i hear from the governor and and going through uh, reports that we get and briefings that we get is it's starting to be less about community spread and more about where the virus is located it's located in nursing homes it's located in large manufacturing facilities like food processors and it's located in in areas like um, jails and prisons. And then when employees go into those facilities and they come back out into their homes, they're spreading the the virus. Those areas are just as prevalent. Those those things are as prevalent in downstate communities, if not more than they are in in Cook County um, and Chicago. So, you know, it's managing that, and it's trying to figure out how to prevent spread in those types of settings. And, And it's happening on a national level, and it's happening in a very... A local level here in Illinois. So, um, you know, I know that I, I, I watch Facebook and I watch TV and I see the frustration among my downstate colleagues. Um, but, but I also feel I, I have family members that have passed away as a result of the coronavirus. It's, it's just a, it's a, it's a difficult dynamic and, you know, there's no easy, there's no good choices. There's just bad choices and less bad choices. So it's just been a lot, it's been a very difficult situation. That's Democratic State Representative Michael Zaleski from Riverside, the chairman of the Illinois House Revenue Committee. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Rick, have a good evening. Thank you. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. 312-981-7200 is your phone number. I'm Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. Um, We played some cuts earlier from the Senate hearing last week with uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. And at at that Senate hearing, uh, Republican Senator Mitt Romney asked Dr. Fauci if it was true, as President Trump maintained, that it was Barack Obama's fault that the U.S. didn't have a vaccine, even though the virus didn't exist when Obama was president? 
Here's Mitt Romney. Where I'm critical of what we've done on testing on vaccines, we've done a pretty darn good job of moving ahead pretty aggressively. And, and yet the president said the other day that President Obama is responsible for our lack of a vaccine. He, uh, Dr. Fauci, um, is President Obama or, or by extension, President Trump, did they do something that that made the likelihood of creating a vaccine less likely? Are, are either President Trump or President Obama responsible for the fact that we don't have a vaccine now or, or in delaying it in some in some way? No, no, Senator, not, a, not at all. Certainly President Obama nor President Trump are responsible for not having a vaccine. Uh, we moved, as you said, because I described it in my opening statement, rather rapidly, no one has ever gone from knowing what the virus was to a phase one trial as fast as we've done. So I don't think that's something that one should say anybody's responsible for doing anything wrong on that. I think that's right. That's the correct way to do it. That's uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Bringing things uh, a bit more locally, uh, joining me now on the phone is Rebecca Shi. She is the executive director of the American Business Immigration Coalition, always a very good friend of the program. Rebecca, how are you this evening? Um, well, it's so nice to hear your voice, Rick. How are you? I'm doing well as well. I'm, I'm at least I'm out of the rain. That's the that's the good thing today. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to have you on because uh, your group has been involved in kind of multiple phases of the various uh, coronavirus relief packages uh, that have been considered. Uh, right now, of course, we have. Uh, what's uh, the known as the Heroes Act that was passed by House Democrats on Friday, and yet we have Mitch McConnell saying it's time for a pause. Let's see how the money that was allocated for various programs is being spent. Um, I, I guess my question is, you know, is there is there something wrong with the pro, with a pause, or do we have to inject more money right away? Um, sure. So I think the the $3 trillion uh, HEROES Act that Speaker Pelosi and the House Democrats passed, um, as you said, the uh, Senate Majority Leader and the White House have said that it's a non-starter. Uh, elements of the HEROES Act that we uh, really like include uh, the uh, set-aside for businesses of color uh, in the Paycheck Protection Program, the uh, longer loan forgiveness timeline of up to to uh, 24 weeks, I think uh, your earlier guest, Sam Toya, mentioned, would help our small businesses of color and restaurants tremendously. Um, and then the third element that we also really like is uh, stimulus checks, right, for anybody who files their taxes with Social Security number or an ITIN. And we, we know that in particular will help uh, to address uh, the needs of both for uh, uh, cash assistance and health care for our vulnerable immigrants who are uh, in our all of our essential workforce sectors. Immigrants make up 13% of our country's population, but are in 30% of the essential uh, sectors that are taking care of Americans, uh, keeping us fed, well uh, treated in the hospitals, and, and making sure that while the majority are staying at home and uh, keeping safe, um, that uh, 
classes are being picked and hospitals are getting deep clean. So I would say those are the elements that are really, really important to uh, pass immediately and, and making sure that our most vulnerable folks that are on the front lines um, uh, during this pandemic are, are taken care of. I, I know you were very active in monitoring, monitoring the uh, Payroll Protection Act as far as small businesses. And of course, you know, one of the questions uh, going from the first round of the, the PPP to the second round, the first round, you know, and, and cases have been brought and questioned about whether, uh, you know, big banks allowed their their customers in first and they got more fees, those kinds of things. But I guess in this in the in the second round, where it appeared to have gotten at least to more of the people it was in businesses it was designed to help uh it would seem to me that businesses owned by immigrants would probably have the most difficulty navigating the system uh of of getting these small business uh quote loans which become grants but that they would be the ones that would be least able to tap into those mm-hmm. yeah now your your um, assumption is definitely correct and uh the latest actually census report um, showed and the Wall Street Journal reported on this this morning is that businesses of color, immigrant entrepreneurs, black-owned businesses continue to be shut out of the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, so the census did a study of the program up until uh, the beginning in uh, early April to uh, early May and found that even though 75% of all small businesses apply for this program, only 37% received the loan. And of those 37%, uh, very few, uh, you know, under 10% were businesses of color. Um, and so... Uh, the second round was definitely better than the first round. We saw average loans dropped to seventy nine thousand uh, versus two hundred six thousand from the first round. Uh, but I think something else that you uh, really hit the nail on the head is that for many of our immigrant entrepreneurs, black owned businesses, uh, and many of them are sole proprietors and these really small uh, smallest borrowers, independent contractors. They need a lot of assistance, right? The one-on-one coaching uh, that are usually provided when it comes to these big firms by their CFOs, their CPAs, their chief counsels, that can really help them, I mean, especially in COVID, to navigate this pretty complex world of financial institutions. How do you turn a loan into a grant? How do you, you know, fill out uh, these applications and determining your eligibility? And so we've actually found that you know, President Prepwinkle of Cook County has been doing a fantastic job uh, from the beginning building up uh, a technical assistance program that uh, fills those gaps for our minority-owned businesses. That um, is an investment from the county um, to provide that one-to-one coaching for our independent contractors and uh, businesses of color uh, that we find, you know, well-resourced firms are doing um, on their own. And one of the reasons why, right, they were able to get these multimillion-dollar PPP loans uh, at the start. Um, But I think the good news now is that more uh, government entities, and even we might see in this next round of the PPP, uh, where uh, folks will be looking at a set-aside for these smaller businesses of color uh, through their lenders, their mission lenders called CEFIs. So hopefully we'll see more and more of our uh, businesses of color uh, receive these, these uh, necessary relief. 
uh, you actually touched on an issue, and that was about the lenders themselves, and I want to ask you about that when we come back. We're speaking with Rebecca Shee, Executive Director of the American Business Immigration Coalition. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. This is your Sunday Spin for May the 17th, 2020. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. 312-981-7200 is our phone number. We're speaking to a good friend of the program, Rebecca Shee, the Executive Director of the American Business Immigration Coalition. Right now, we're kind of focusing on this whole issue of uh, coronavirus relief issues for uh, businesses run by immigrants, businesses of color, these smaller, smaller businesses. And Rebecca, while you said the second round of the payroll protection program uh, seemed to have delved into more assistance to those smaller, smaller businesses, and and yes, uh, there there are some resources for navigating how to get these loans. Uh, I have to wonder, one of the initial problems seemed to me was uh, it was the lenders and whether there was access for these businesses to find the lenders that could then uh, fulfill the uh, the PPP request. Absolutely. Uh, during the first round, we saw... Uh, lenders prioritizing their bigger customers, uh, Ruth Chris, Potbelly, uh, publicly traded companies. Uh, we read um, in the headlines nearly every day, uh, got their PPP loans ahead of the mom and pops, the smaller neighborhood restaurants, coffee shops. And by the end of those uh, 14 days, uh, you know, $349 billion got gobbled up. Uh, by these larger publicly traded companies. And I think you pointed out earlier, there was a internal uh, interest rate uh, that accompanied these loans so that, you know, for some of these big box banks, they made more money helping uh, their larger customers uh, than their small fry. And so with, you know, all the organizing, the bad press, public pressure, uh, the second round, the Treasury and the S. BA uh, tried to, they called it, throttle the system and and, um, and also started uh, auditing loans that were over several million dollars. And so all of those pressure combined actually made a lot of these publicly traded companies give back um, their PPP and force some of these bigger banks to go uh, to their smaller uh, customers first for the second round. So we saw the numbers dramatically drop. Um, although I would say the 79,000 that we're seeing for the you know current average loan is still pretty high based on our experience. And we've been doing a lot of technical assistance in suburban Cook, uh, uh, West, Western uh, area of suburban Cook. And our average loan, we've done 147 um, businesses that have been approved, all minority-owned and independent contractors, is about 32,000. And that's been the average uh, mostly around the country. Um, and we've been going to uh, lenders like Seaway Self-Help, um, which are called the CDFIs. Uh, they're nonprofit mission lenders that many of our businesses of color actually bank with and depend on and have been opening up to uh, 
businesses that were rejected by their uh, larger banks um, to receive the PPP. So we've actually had a pretty good experience uh, with these uh, mission-based lenders than the larger banks. Um, I was curious about one of the uh, statements that Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, made about seeking a pause in this uh, in, in federal funding, federal relief funding, but also pointed at this uh, House Democrat passed package, the, the Heroes uh, relief package that passed Friday, and where uh, he called it a, a liberal wish list and, and cited one of the things was uh, giving aid to uh, illegal immigrants. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Sure. So um, so I'll, I'll just walk through this a little bit, Rick. So sure. um, number one, you know, if you if you're somebody who uh cares only cares about sort of like what's in it for me right um supporting stimulus checks for undocumented immigrants is good sorry uh, you 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 picked you you kind of fell out there rebecca if you could repeat that I'm not sure we may have spreading about undocumented immigrants. So number one, undocumented immigrants. Rebecca, Rebecca, hold on. Oh, Rebecca, yeah. hold on okay. just a minute because your your phone line dropped there. So you're going to have oh. to you're going to have to go back to the beginning here. Okay. Okay. Go right ahead. Oh, okay. So can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, okay. Great. So um, I just wanted to debunk a couple of myths around the. Uh, the stimulus checks for undocumented immigrants. So, so number one, undocumented immigrants file their taxes billions and billions every year. Uh, and this is not something that I say as an advocate. This is data from the Social Security Foundation. Um, and they file taxes through something that's called an ITIN that's issued to them through the IRS. And so in the House bill, if you file a tax with Social Security number or an ITIN, you get the same $1,200 stimulus check as, you know, you or me if we're unemployed. Um, so, but if you don't care about those, you know, equity issues um, and you're only caring about what's in it for me, by providing these stimulus checks is good for your health and for public health, right? So we know that undocumented immigrants play a disproportionate role in our essential workforce. They're 13% of our nation's population, but they make up 30% of essential sectors, the restaurants, the construction, healthcare. They're still picking the crops, working at these meat packing plants that we're hearing about all of these high infection rates. They're doing the deep cleaning at the hospitals or at the bus station. They're prepping the food for deliveries. So they're basically doing all the dirty, dangerous, and difficult work that Americans did not want to do pre-COVID and with 30 million unemployed are not doing during COVID. So like say this undocumented worker who's working in one of these essential sectors is sick. Right. If they get a stimulus check and they can get health care, they can go to a clinic, they get tested, they're quarantined for two weeks. Right. That's good for you. That's good for me. That's good for Mitch McConnell. That's good for all of his or her coworkers. Right. Because that makes sure that they will not be infecting others. But right now, undocumented immigrants cannot. Right. They have to um, still uh, pay their mortgage, their rent. Just put food on the table for their family, 
So what do they do? They continue to work while they're sick, while they're infected. And that's not good for anyone, right? So that's what these stimulus checks do. They're for undocumented immigrants who pay billions and billions of dollars in taxes every year. And we know that because they have this ITIN number that's from the IRS, right? And it's also good for each of us, for the well-being and health of every American who likes to be fed and taken care of and that don't want to do these difficult, dangerous, um, and dirty work. And so I think, you know, long term, and, you know, thanks, Rick, for, for, you know, seeing all of the economic data, and we've been saying this, but long term, we do need comprehensive immigration reform, right? We need a DREAM Act immediately. We know SCOTUS is going to be deciding any day now. But really, under COVID, we see um, more than ever, right, who's literally carrying our nation, the economy on, 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 on their back, right, who's doing this work so that most of us can stay home and be safe. Um, you know, one of my co-chairs in Florida, Paul Damari, he's the largest tomato grower in the country. He's hiring lots of people right now, or like he's, you know, has lots of opening positions he likes to hire. And I talked to him right before the show. He says the only people that are showing up for work and, and you know, want to apply are the the Haitian um, refugees and the Oaxacan Mexicans, right? He says 30 million Americans are unemployed. Not one of them have shown up on my tomato farm to pick tomatoes because that's very difficult and very skilled work. Um, so, anyway, so that's my that's my spiel about why. The stimulus checks is not just important, right, for the people, but if you don't care about that, like if you care about your own health and the health of your loved ones, this is why a stimulus check for undocumented immigrants is is good, right, for our country and good for each one of us. Well, I, I think you answered a question before I even asked it because uh, obviously President Trump, who is uh, uh, always looking for ways to crack down on uh, illegal immigration, even legal immigration, uh, basically indicated that with the unemployment rate as high, that he would further crack down uh, so that, quote, Americans can get jobs. But I think, as you just pointed out from uh, what's going on in Florida, you know, the, that's the immigrants are doing the jobs that most Americans don't want to do. That's right. And and if you see the the um, I find that President Trump usually does like the big hammer uh, policy announcement. And then he a few days later, right, does something that's a lot more surgical. And so if you look at what he the announcement he made and then the implementation included a carve out for H-2A workers. And so these are the seasonal. Um, so a lot of them are working on ag, but a lot of them are seasonal that, that are working on uh, golf courses, uh, including his, right? And so, uh, so they're coming in, and we actually have more H-2A workers in our country, and they're extending their stay beyond the usual um, 8 to 10 months, right, because the processing at the Department of Homeland Security is on pause or, or much slower. And so there's actually more immigrants coming in under a different visa than we've ever seen before. And so... Um, 
Um, yeah. <laughs> I just I, I, I want to just very quickly uh, ask you about uh, the census, and I have to assume that your organization uh, has to play a heavy role in trying to make sure that uh, we get everybody counted. Uh, yes. So I think that's the good news is uh, that Illinois is in the top 10, I believe, in terms of census participation. I think we definitely have room to grow. We are uh, behind uh, where we were in 2010 at this time. And um, the other good news, though, is that due to COVID, the census did extend the self-response period to October 31st. Um, I think that the challenge continued to be the fear of the citizenship question, even though it's not in the official uh, questionnaire. Um, I know a lot of groups are doing great work uh, trying to virtually uh, contact, and we're trying to contact uh, immigrants through their employers, so through various trusted channels, uh, to say that, number one, the citizenship question isn't on the form. It's fast it's easy to fill out okay sorry i'm I'm gonna have to hold you right there because we've run out of time rebecca she executive director of the american business immigration coalition as always thank you so much for joining me and and explaining your take on these issues oh of course thank you thank you for having me rick now back to the tribune's rick pearson it's the sunday spin on 720 wgn Welcome back to the bonus hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. ABC White House reporter Jonathan Carl has a new book out. It's called Front Row at the Trump Show. Well, Jonathan Carl was on WGBH in Boston recently, and he explained Trump's relationship with the press during the coronavirus crisis is become very serious. He also offers advice on how reporters should deal with the president. The president has, has, has strategies. One of the few things he's actually strategic about. He wants to portray the press not just as the enemy of the people, but as the opposition party, so that no matter what is reported about his administration, if it's negative, he can make it sound like it's just the same as if the Democratic National Committee put out a press release. What do you expect? That's my opposition. So I don't want us to play into that and to appear like the opposition. But what I also say is that when he brands real news fake, when he uh, when he calls a free press the enemy of the people, the record does need to be corrected. And he is trying to undermine the very notion of truth by doing that. And it does need to be corrected. And it's a fine it's a fine balance here. And like I said, I think we've entered a, a particular phase here where it really does need to be called out. That's ABC's White House reporter Jonathan Carl on his new book, Front Row at the Trump Show. Moving things back to an Illinois focus now. Joining me on the phone is the treasurer for the state of Illinois, Democrat Michael Frerichs. Mr. Treasurer, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Rick, good evening. Glad to join you. Uh, I think Sunday uh, 7 p.m. is a lot easier for me than getting up Sunday 7 a.m. Uh, you and although, me. although I understand this, this new time slot has you getting preempted a lot more. Well, uh, yeah, when there's sports, uh, but uh, we all know what's happened to those for for right now. Hopefully, they'll be back soon. And and frankly, uh, it won't be that much bad when we get uh, baseball going again, because 
the White Sox play their home games on Sunday afternoons at 1 o'clock, so uh, it fits right into the, into the time frame. I may be able to go to a Sox game, even though I'm a Cubs fan. I like going to see Sox. Uh, Me and, too. Uh, and uh, go over there and still uh, make it in for the show. So, you know, they, they could work. things can work out. Things can work out. So, look so you're telling me you don't put hours of prep time in before your show? Uh, that's what Saturday is for. <laughs> that is what's uh, thank you thank you so much yes it may not sound like it but uh believe it or not yes that's pretty much much what my saturday is so uh what can i say um thank you so much for joining me and uh i think your time is done now no uh <laughs> Uh, I, I was. I wanted to get your thoughts on the legislature coming back in session, and you know, in talking to a, a couple of people that are not uh, not members of the General Assembly, but just uh, observers of the process, and just wondered maybe if the legislature had come in a bit earlier, we might not be in kind of seeing some of this political divisioning going on and regional divisioning going on if if just maybe there was some way to have the the legislature back in session earlier you know i think there are a lot of people who would have liked to come back sooner uh but we do have to consider the health of our legislators as we consider the health of uh, all people in this state you know and i think in some ways they have to practice what they preach if they're telling the public that the best thing you can do is to stay at home, to work remotely if you're able to do that, then I think they should do that. I think part of the problem has been the General Assembly doesn't have a provision to work from home. I think they've gotten around that by doing some committee work over Zoom meetings or whatever their platform is. Uh, But I think that this country really came together for a little while uh, around coronavirus. You've seen this in the past, whether it be after 9-11, after various wars we come together. But eventually, people take to their partisan sides and they start sniping. And a downstate versus a Chicago divide is not something new. Coronavirus didn't cause this. Some of those legislators who have been out front on this uh, return to Springfield and the fight against the governor uh, had been against him well before this. Uh, Some of these same legislators campaigned on the issue of dividing Chicago from the rest of the state. So I'm not sure that coming back to Springfield sooner would have really changed that. No, but in speaking to Mike uh, Mike Zaleski earlier, uh, just about the, if anything, it seems to me that the coronavirus has kind of uh, magnified that upstate, downstate division. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I'm calling to you from Champaign, Illinois, uh, or proud resident of Champaign. I've been spending an awful lot of time here as I've been working from home taking our meetings over the phone, uh, virtual meetings, uh, answering a lot of emails. Um, but I think uh, it's not been as bad downstate as it's been reported in the city of Chicago. I think when you put people so close together, disease spreads a little more so. Well, then, I think that's I, the, led some, some people downstate to falsely believe that they're immune, that they're different. And I think the governor is trying to make sure that we don't have the outbreaks in downstate you've seen in chicago in new york and other other major urban centers no and well and i think too the focus may be more intense here in the city than it is downstate definitely i can tell you staying down here uh, i follow i consume chicago news but i'm also a downstate resident and i follow our news as well 
Uh, there's a lot more devoted to sheltering in place in Chicago than there is down here. There are definite frustrations in downstate Illinois, uh, but I think that a lot of my neighbors understand that this is for the good of people's lives, but it's also ultimately going to be good for our economy. Right now, uh, there are definite pressures, and I feel them, and that's why we put out a program, a loan program for small businesses to try and do what we can to help bridge them to that point when we get back to something approaching normal. All right, Mr. Um, Treasurer, now you jumped the gun. We're, we're going to get to that. In fact, okay. In fact, I was going to use that as the tease for this upcoming commercial break. We're speaking to Illinois State Treasurer Michael Frerichs. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the Skyline Studio. 312-981-7200 is our phone number. Joining me on the phone from Champaign, Illinois, is the Treasurer of the State of Illinois, Michael Frerichs. And now, Mr. Treasurer... Why don't you? Sorry, sorry, for, sorry for jumping the gun there. It's just been so long since I've been on Sunday Spin. I'm excited to get to to the news. Well, I can understand that being in Champaign, and uh, you know the, the corn growing season is going a little slow here in the rain. I get that. I get that. Um, well, it's also graduation season, and this was a graduation unlike any other in I, the past. I, I can imagine that. In fact, actually, uh, my youngest daughter sent me a picture. Uh, over the just a couple of days ago which was the fourth anniversary of her graduation and it's like wow how the world has uh, really uh, changed in your postgraduate world very quickly yes it has um so the, so what what is your office doing to uh, help uh, businesses with the coronavirus are we doing enough uh I mean, there's all kinds of programs out there. Uh, how, how do these businesses navigate? I mean, I, I mean, it looks like there's avenues of, of help. How do they navigate this stuff? Yeah, I'm spending a lot of time on my phone talking to various chambers of commerce, small business, business advocacy groups, uh, a bunch of different business groups about our loan program, and letting them know that although there's a lot of different programs out there, uh, State Treasurer's Office has one as well. Ours was designed to complement other programs out there not to be in competition with them. We don't have the ability at the Illinois State Treasurer's Office to print money like they do at the federal government. We can't just be giving away a lot of money, but we can make capital available for those small businesses. Those that were once profitable, we have every reason to believe they will be again sometime in the future, and just trying to help them with a bridge loan to get to that point, get over these troubled waters. Uh, so we initially put up uh, a quarter of a billion dollars, $250 million, uh, for small businesses in the state. Uh, we found that there was a lot of demand. We added another $250 million, or half a billion total in this loan program, for low-interest loans for small businesses affected by COVID-19 around the state. So how many, uh, how many businesses uh, can, can get a bite of that $500 million? Well, we don't lend directly to businesses. I'm the chief banker for the state, but the state doesn't have a state bank. So these are so uh, we like partner. link deposit type. Uh, yes, okay. exactly. We were able to get this up and running quickly because we do link deposit programs already. We have relationships with community banks and credit unions. 
And ours was really designed for your smaller businesses out there, the mom and pops. Uh, we limit the amount per financial institution to $25 million. So your Chase's, your Bank of America's, your Wells Fargo's, the big banks out there aren't interested in our money. And quite frankly, that second tier of banks, your fifth thirds, your <clears throat> PNC's, really aren't as well. This is designed for those small businesses that have relations or small credit community banks that have relationships with small businesses. Um, so we have over 30 financial institutions around the state. Uh, we have over $250 million committed to those institutions, but there's still money out there if a business is looking for a low-interest loan. Now, the governor recently talked about wanting the state to do kind of a state-backed uh, relief package for residents as well as businesses and basically said that that would hinge on um, anticipated federal aid uh, to the states, and of course, we've been talking about the Heroes yep. Act that passed uh, on Friday out of the House that Mitch McConnell says is dead in the Senate, and federal aid could be a, a ways coming, uh, even as lawmakers try to put a budget together. Um, I mean, certainly we're in uncharted waters here, uh, as far as most certainly what what the effect is going to be, but it does seem that. There's going to have to be not just federal stimulus aid, but there's going to have to be some kind of state response, whether it's money to money to be able to inject in the economy or to provide some kind of relief from from taxes. Yeah, I think that there is going to have to be something for states. There's been a lot, awful lot said about Illinois and bailouts. But this is a nationwide problem. It's a global pandemic, and it's not just an issue in Illinois. Other states around the country, if there's no sort of money available at the federal level, are going to see a great reduction in spending, which isn't going to be good for the economy, or have to be increased taxes. This is not just about Illinois. The federal government has the ability to print money and take on debt. States do not. But, you know, just because we can't solve the problem at the state level or the state treasurer's office, we still look for ways that we can help. And so we looked at small businesses and put together a link deposit program to make uh, low-interest loans available. We also look at individuals we know are hurting and made sure we had efforts to ramp up our unclaimed property division, our iCash, to get more money into the hands of Illinois citizens this time when many of them are really hurting. And uh, the iCash program is much easier to uh, access these days than it used to be. It is. One of the things I got tired of hearing when I came into office was, hey, Treasurer, you've got my money. I would say, great, I'd love to give it to you. Oh, it's too much of a hassle. Why don't you keep it? It's not my money. It's not the state's money. We'd like to return it to people. I know that when we put that money into our residents' hands and they can then in turn spend it at local businesses, which is admittedly more difficult these days. It does more for the economy than it does sitting in a bank account in Springfield. And so we created something called Fast Track, which allow people now, they can go online if they have less than $500, they can go submit some information electronically, and we can cut the check in as little as uh, a week to get it out. We'll do a, a LexisNexis search to verify things. In the past, you had to mail in documents. You had to get things notarized. And some people just said it's not worth the effort. Well, because of coronavirus, and we know that people have problems 
getting things notarized or perhaps tracking down documents, we increased that threshold to $2,000. Now people can go online. And since we sent our employees home to work from home, we've returned over $29 million, uh, processed over 26,000 claims, and about 18,000 of those were fast-track, easy claim processes. $29 million since what? time period? It's in mid-March, so in the last two months. Uh, you might have heard, uh, we saw that something was going to be, was going to happen. Uh, back in late January, early February, we started working with a continuity of operation plan. Meaning we wanted to see what would happen if we could not come into the office. We started sending employees home with laptops and cell phones to test out our IT, to test out our uh, digital infrastructure. And when we had an employee tested positive with coronavirus, um, we sent everyone home. Then it cleaned out our office and were able to continue to process unclaimed property claims, continue to make our investments, continuing to uh, oversee our college savings and our retirement savings programs. Uh, we were prepared for this. It's a, it's a shame that there were some people in government who just thought by wishing it away or hoping that it wouldn't happen, um, we really sort of stumbled uh, at the federal level, I think, on some of our programs. Obviously, as you said, every state is going through you know the, the pains of, of this as far as functioning state government. But, you know, Illinois, we, we go into this without not a lot of leeway. Uh, and, and when I look at things about... Uh, from S&P or Fitch about bond ratings, um, it, it seems very scary. And, and, yeah, all states are going to suffer, but it seems like we may suffer the most when it comes to any kind of bonding or borrowing that we may have to do. Yes, you are right there, Rick. Uh, although it's affected all states and all states are going to need help, we come into it with much less of a cushion. Uh, we don't have a rainy day fund like other states did or a rainy fund that would be depleted very rapidly. And our bond rating was already very low, which makes it more expensive to issue debt, to borrow. But our hope is the Federal Reserve will be able to, uh, will be able to, uh, to raise money through the Federal Reserve, borrowing against them. Uh, but I think that's one of the things the General Assembly is going to have to tackle uh, really soon when they come back. Uh, I don't think they have the ability right now, but I don't think they'll have a problem getting that legislation passed. So the legislation would do what? Would allow, allow the uh, Federal Reserve to buy state debt. Which I know is something that has been talked about as, a, I mean, this is not bailout, as it were, uh, but this is part of no, the, the, just, the Fed's function of throwing capital out there, yeah, basically. Just, just realizing the markets are crazy right now, there's a lot of uncertainty, and the Fed is stepping in to to provide some calm out there, some reassurances that state municipal governments will continue to be able to function. Is there confidence that when we kind of turn the hurdle here that there is going to be capital available for small businesses and restaurants and everybody trying to restart? You know, I think uh, it depends how well we do turning that corner, how quickly it happens. Um, If we really see our numbers starting to go down, if the advice we're getting from our doctors, uh, experts, epidemiologists is followed, I think it's going to turn around more quickly. And this is different than other recessions we've experienced. You know, the, the 2008-2009 <laughs> recession was really a result of some 
bad actors out there who were manipulating our, our systems. This is uh, the economy was going well. The pandemic shut things down, and so I think it's every reason to believe that when we turn this corner, we'll be able to to restart like we were. If this does not drag on too long, very quickly to access the Illinois Small Business COVID nineteen relief program as well as iCash programs, oh, what's the website? IllinoisTreasurer.gov is a place to go to find out information about our loan program, but. You actually should reach out to your local financial institution, your community bank or credit union. They're the ones who will offer the loans. But you can go to IllinoisTreasure.gov and click on iCash to find if we have property that belongs to you. That's Illinois State Treasurer Michael Frerichs. Mr. Treasurer, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you. Have a great evening. This is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. 7.35 on this drizzly Sunday evening here in Chicago. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me on the phone is an old, old friend and colleague, Doug Finke. Doug is the State House correspondent for the State Journal Register of Springfield. Doug, good evening. Good evening to you, Rick. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm old, old friend. But, yes, you uh, count as old, old friend. Let's face okay. it. Okay. Well, okay. or is it the friend part you want to dispute? Uh, <laughs> we'll debate that later. Okay. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I wanted to have Doug on the show because, as we've been talking about earlier in the program, the fact that the Illinois legislature is returning uh, to work on Wednesday, a special session that is supposed to be focused on uh, coronavirus-related actions as well as a state budget. And as uh, Representative Mike Zaleski said earlier on the program, uh, the goal is to wrap it all up in three days. That's my understanding from talking to people. The absolute last thing that they want to do is uh, have to come back Um uh, in another week because it couldn't finish things up. So uh, I suspect we are going to see a uh, uh, very focused um, session, and I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of uh, tolerance for um, oh, plain politics, for lack of a better term. Uh, I, I think they'll uh, try to the leaders will try to keep that to a minimum as much as they can, and just focus on getting the things done that absolutely have to get done, and then they can get out of town again. I think that might be the goal. But let's face it, uh, this is is a chance for uh, members to vent, a chance for members to grandstand. Uh, it, It provides them a venue that is larger than just speaking to their local constituents on Facebook and I know that the you know there probably isn't going to be a lot of tolerance for it but I think there is every potential for this to get disruptive at points I oh, I I, uh, I agree that the potential is there for that and I think that uh, uh, there are people who will uh, certainly try to do that uh, I think we even know who they are uh, yes, <laughs> we've we've already uh, heard uh, uh, 
cases of some uh, Republican members, some of the conservative members who say that they're not going to wear a mask uh, at the the session, even though that's a requirement uh, uh, that the speaker put out uh, this lengthy memo about uh, the way to conduct yourselves at the uh, during the House session, and one of those was you will wear a mask. So we'll see uh, where that ends up. If uh, I mean that could be right out of the gate uh, uh, a controversy about whether those people are admitted to the uh, the chamber in the convention center here in town. Yeah, maybe Doug. Why don't you just explain how this is not going to be your normal one-stop shopping at the state capitol building this time no it's not uh the senate still plans to meet uh, in the senate chamber although uh not everyone at once because that would violate uh, uh the prohibition against large crowds the uh house is going to move to the uh, convention center here in springfield it uh, uh it's a smaller venue than uh, uh a lot of your listeners to are are used to in Chicago. I'd, but. Uh, I'd, I'd say it's on par with the Wind Trust Arena. Okay, about that. So roughly about ten thousand seat. That, that sounds about right. Yeah, and the the uh, House members are going to be spread out on the main floor. Um, and that way they'll be able to maintain distancing. Uh, a limited number of media is going to be admitted, and they will be on a mezzanine level, and then a limited uh, number of, of the public is going to be allowed in, and they are also going to be up in one of the upper uh, levels of the uh, convention center. So there's not going to be a direct interaction between the press and the uh, lawmakers, which is a normal occurrence when both the House and Senate are in their chambers and conducting business. And I kind of like the idea, I'm picturing in my mind, 170 or 100, 118 House members, each at a six-foot table, uh, and with a mask over their face. Yeah, well, uh, at least some of them will. Uh, right. <laughs> according to these people, said they won't. But yeah, each one is going to have a, a, a table to be at. Uh, just conducting the business is going to be very interesting because uh, when they vote on bills now, they do it electronically. They have uh, buttons on their desks. They just push that, and the vote is recorded in a, a you know very short period of time. Electronic now, roll call. For an electronic roll call, they're not going to have access to this uh, in the convention center, so they're going to have to call a roll call and record people as they vote individually. Uh, And even in the Senate, uh, as I understand it, they're going to, uh, again, they're not going to all be in the chamber at one time, so if they vote on a bill, they're going to have to do it in phases where uh, Different people come in and, and vote, or they'll relay the, their votes to someone on the floor to record. Uh, it, it is going to be a very interesting process. Yeah, and I think a lengthy one, and just that's for the technical issues. And, yeah, right. And then you've got, uh, I mean, the fact of trying to wrap everything up. Uh, when, for a lot of people, uh, the information is going to be new. Uh, it's going to be hitting them for the first time on budget issues and cuts and those kinds of things. Obviously, the budget being, you know, a matter of great speculation. Uh, right, and uh, we don't know um, 
for sure what the areas of spending are going to be affected. Uh, there is discussion about giving the governor a lot more latitude to move money around uh, than he normally has, uh, just because of the uncertainty of uh, what's happening now. Uh, one thing is certain is that uh, the state is going to have less revenue to work with in the upcoming budget year than they had anticipated. And so that is going to necessitate uh, cuts, uh, you would assume, in some areas. And it, uh, at the same time, there's going to be tremendous pressure on other parts of the budget to provide assistance for people who are uh, hurting economically from uh, this virus. So it's going to be a, an interesting balancing act, and we haven't seen, uh, at least I haven't seen any details yet of how they're going to carry this off. No, I mean, questions about, you know, we had the last report of what the lost revenues were from the governor, also from uh, the government uh, accounting office. On, on just how far revenues are fallen, and they're they're still in free fall. And we'll 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 be talking more about that with Doug Finke, State House correspondent from the State Journal Register in Springfield. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. This is your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And on the phone with me is Doug Finke, State House correspondent for the State Journal Register of Springfield. We're talking about the upcoming resumption of legislative activities in Springfield. And, um, you know, Doug, obviously Democrats have super majorities in both chambers. So ostensibly they can kind of slam dunk whatever they want. That's that's provided that they can agree on it. And as we've seen in the past with budget issues, particularly uh, with the uncertainty that surrounds this budget and the cuts, the fact that cuts are going to have to be made, I'm not so sure that it's just a slam dunk anymore. No, it isn't. Um, and even going back further than that, uh the directive from the Speaker's office, for example, uh, about the conduct of the session uh, advised that all members should be tested for the coronavirus before they come here. Um, so we hope nobody would test positive, but if they did, then uh, that would cut down uh, some attendance. There was also some advice about uh, if people have uh, medical conditions that would make uh, uh, them of uh, a bad risk uh, for contracting this. Uh, uh, they might stay away, so we don't even know for sure uh, how many people will be uh, attending the session. Uh, but beyond that, you're absolutely right. Uh, there have been divisions within the Democratic Party on uh, budget issues in the past. Uh, some people uh, like to uh, see enhanced programs and spending on programs to help people. Others um, I want to uh, say that, uh, you know, these are extraordinary times. We don't have the money to work with, so uh, hang on to what we've got so far and don't even consider the idea of expanding things. Um, there's also a, a strictly a political matter that uh, if there are vulnerable um, members in the House or Senate, the Democrats that uh, are up for election this year, you don't necessarily want 
to uh, put them uh, casting a vote for a budget that is going to be uh, containing cuts and may not play well uh, with a lot of their constituents. So if you can spare them from doing that, that would be uh, preferable. But uh, uh, in the end, if uh, the Republicans decide to withhold their votes and some of the issues that are going to be coming up, may be in a very uncomfortable position of having to support things that wouldn't normally like to. Well, and one thing comes to mind, too, is that uh, since we embarked, and this this actually goes back to uh, Bruce Rauner as governor, was the uh, educational changes in, in the school aid formula and the promise and basically was supposed to be a commitment of $350 million new in education funding every year. And I'm, I have to wonder where, where that is. That, that's an excellent question. And I have not uh, uh, heard any details from people about uh, whether they're going to be able to uh, continue that commitment in the new budget. Uh, I did uh, speak recently with uh, Senator Andy Menar, who was one of the architects of that uh, uh, whole enhanced uh, school funding plan, and uh, he was one who uh, raised the prospect of focusing on keeping what, what you've got, you know, uh, continue the progress that you've achieved so far, don't backpedal on things, but maybe there isn't uh, room right now to go ahead and, uh, uh, again, increase spending in, in various areas. And, of course, being an election year, that's something everybody would love to do. Oh, absolutely. Um, and now, and, and actually, you had something to ride on by the fact that education funding had been increased substantially each year. And now you have to say, you know, now you now you're have to, a legitimate excuse, grant you, grant you. But it's, nevertheless, you would have liked to have used that as something to campaign on. Yeah, um Unfortunately, reality uh, rears its ugly head sometimes, and uh, even in spring, you, even in Springfield, it does. Uh, yeah, unbelievable, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you can say that we've made a couple of years of progress. Okay, we have to pause maybe for one year, but we can resume that uh, when the uh, economy starts showing signs of recovering. And uh, that's another thing about the budget. Um, there was. Some initial speculation uh, that the legislature would pass uh, like a half-year budget or something like right. that. That has been, from the, at least again from the people that I've talked to, uh, that has been roundly rejected. They're going to pass a full-year budget, but with the understanding that uh, they're going to have to come back and make adjustments to it, and they may be some significant adjustments, but. Uh, you don't know exactly how much money is going to be coming from the federal government. You don't know for sure how badly state revenues are going to be hurt by all this. We have estimates that uh, are pretty ugly, but, uh, you know, when the reality is there, it could be better, it could be worse. But uh, nonetheless, uh, a full-year budget, but then coming back when things uh, get to some sense of normalcy and make adjustments to uh, – 
reflect any changes that have come uh, in the intervening months. Well, and that's that's why I found it interesting is last week when the governor talked about wanting a a state specific kind of relief program for residents and businesses, and then when the question came to be, well, where's that money going to come from? And the answer was, well, it's it's dependent on federal funding. And of course, you talk about the big question mark that's out there is federal funding, and just and 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 quite frankly, I I encourage people to kind of overlook the uh, sometimes daily, sometimes not back-and-forth rhetoric between the President of the United States and the Democratic governor of the state of Illinois because it's not moving the ball either way here. Uh, the bottom line is it would be a comprehensive federal package done by Congress, and it's not going to be hung up by the a rhetorical battle between these two. No, and... Uh but uh, we don't, uh, not only do we not know the amount of any additional federal uh, dollars that will be coming, but we don't know when they would be coming. And uh, there cer- seems to be cer- some... Cer- certainly not before this Friday. <laughs> no, uh, uh, nobody moves that quickly. And, uh, and uh, so uh, we're going to have to pass a budget and... Uh, the, continue operations as best we can and again most likely with giving the governor some increased flexibility to to move money around and and shore up places where additional money is needed so the legislature doesn't have to come back and approve every little change you know and we'll again see how much political support there is for that there certainly is going to be are going to be people who are reluctant to give the governor that much power but uh, uh, again these are extraordinary times and that you're going to have to give him some extraordinary powers I think for the time being so tomorrow the uh, Republican leaders of the House and Senate are scheduled to have a press conference saying that as part of these session activities that uh, the legislature should remove the proposed constitutional amendment for a graduated rate income tax from the November 3rd ballot. Um, uh, you want to guess how that's going to turn out? I, I think we can already guess that, yes. But, and, and it's interesting because one of the uh, uh, issues that's on the uh, special session proclamation is the uh, uh, this thing that is mailed out to voters before the election explaining the pros and cons of this uh, constitutional amendment, uh, the legislature has to approve that language, and that's one of the things that they're planning to do this upcoming week. So um, I, I don't think they're planning on uh, repealing that or rescinding that uh, amendment for the November election. Not, not after they've got all that language written. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you put that much effort into something, you don't want to just scrap it. Yeah, I actually, I was curious. I didn't bother to look to see who was assigned the duties for writing the pros and cons of this. Uh, but, I mean, I I do think... There might be, and I, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, where I thought that there, because of the uncertainty of the coronavirus and the environment and the economy, that that could add another kind of element towards people considering whether to vote on this. And certainly, maybe perhaps it favored the opponents of this because of, again, you know, the uncertainty and, and, and the, the fear that this could creep down into lower incomes. 
Yeah, I think there's no question that uh, uh, depending on what the situation is as, uh, as Election Day nears, that the uh, just the background of this coronavirus is going to weigh on people's minds and uh, steer them and how they vote on this thing. Uh, but it's going to be on the ballot. The, the, uh, the Democrats are not going to vote to take that off at this point. I, I don't can't see that happening. No, not 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 at all. But what one thing I am curious that's also on the agenda is uh, 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 voting. Well, it's not specifically worded that way, but I assume it's safe to say voting by mail. Right. There's a item in here about. Uh, uh, issues pertaining to the 2020 general election and state board of elections. Uh, that is pretty much taken to mean some expansion of voting by mail. Uh, that's been discussed um, in a number of locales, and uh, certainly here in Illinois is a, uh, something to do uh, within the context of the uh, uh, sparing people having to show up to polls and, and avoid spreading the coronavirus even more. Uh, we know how the president feels about that, but uh, I don't think his opinions will uh, necessarily sway the General Assembly on that issue. No, but certainly, uh, I, in talking to uh, House Republican Leader Jim Durkin, he sees no need to do anything expansive. That actually, Illinois' uh, vote by mail application is—it's is, pretty. It's a pretty liberal uh, interpretation. You don't need to, you don't need, as you did in the old days, to say, well, I'm going to be out of town or anything like that. It's no fault. It's just you file for an absentee ballot and you get one, which is not the case in, in all states. No, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not. And that is correct. Uh, the, Illinois has a, a pretty generous uh, system. I uh, again, I'm not sure that uh, that is going to uh, dissuade people from attempting to uh, uh, pass something to uh, further enhance it, uh, just because that's uh, uh, you know on their agenda. So right, and 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 really, I think it comes down to one is mailing everybody, every registered voter, an absentee ballot request, mail-in ballot request form, versus mailing everybody a full ballot to fill out with postage paid on both and uh it's a, it, I, I think as i recall it's a 40 million dollar proposition to mail a ballot a full ballot out to everybody that sounds about right but i i wouldn't want to stake my life on it so well it probably costs extra in chicago because you got all the judges too so well there you go <laughs> doug, doug finke state house correspondent for the state journal register of springfield thank you so much for uh, helping us this evening try to navigate through springfield and good luck next week well stay uh, stay safe rick <laughs> we will all try to do that well, that's our show. I want to thank our guest, Sam Toya, president and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association, Democratic State Representative Michael Zaleski, Democrat from Riverside and chair of the Illinois House Revenue Committee, Rebecca Shee from the American Business Immigration Coalition, the Illinois State Treasurer, Michael Frerichs. You've been listening to The Sunday Spin. Thank you so much. This is WGN. Chicago's very own. Cheese!